The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Well, good morning. Good to be here as we look at God's Word together. Like Blair said, we're going to be continuing through the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24, looking specifically at verses 13 through 35. So, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have your Bible, you can raise your hand and an usher would love to get one into your hands. Uh, while you're turning there, let me give you kind of the big picture of what's happening in our passage here in Luke. Uh, we're going to follow two followers of Christ who are wrestling with the implication of what has happened the last few days. The one whom they had put their hope in had been crucified and buried. Now they're left sorrowful, confused, and without hope. But Jesus doesn't allow them to remain this way. The main point of the passage this morning is that walking with Jesus leads to greater hope. Walking with Jesus leads to greater hope. So let's go ahead and look at the text and see how this truth is modeled for us. Starting in verse 13, and it says, That very day... Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. This is God's word for God's people. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we find life. 
God, I pray that this morning you would uh, help me to step out of the way and Christ would be put on display, God, that he would be magnified above all else. Would you open our eyes this morning, help us to see, give us ears to hear that we might live lives of obedience to Christ. We love you. Pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. So I've already given you the main point this morning that walking with Jesus leads to greater hope. And before we see how the text supports that, I wanted to share a definition for this hope we're going to be talking about. A lot of the time, probably most of the time, when we talk about hope, we use it in a kind of flippant, wishful way. For instance, the first vehicle I owned was a little truck that I had in high school, and it was pretty run down. Uh, The fuel gauge and odometer on it were both broken, so I never knew at any given moment how much gas I had in the tank. So every time I got in the truck to drive somewhere, in my mind, I hoped that I had enough gas to get there. But I didn't really know. I had no idea. I had nothing to rely on to give me assurance in my desire to not run out of gas. And that's really the difference. So here it is. Biblical hope is the confident expectation of better days ahead. The person who has this confident expectation rooted in the character of God is someone who is grounded rather than gullible. They're unwavering rather than uncertain. They're secure, not a sucker. Now that we have this understanding of what biblical hope looks like, let's go back to the text. We're going to look specifically at three ways we can find greater hope through our walk with Christ. So the first way that we find this hope is to turn to God. In the first section of the story, we see that it begins with the phrase, that very day. These events are taking place on the very day that Jesus rose from the dead, after the women and Peter and John had all witnessed the empty tomb. Now these men are walking from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. We don't know much about these men. It's speculated that they might have been part of the 72 disciples that Jesus sends out in Luke chapter 10, but we can't know for sure. What we do know is that they were committed followers of Christ. So they're walking and talking about all the things that had just taken place. To say it was a roller coaster of a week would be an understatement. From the triumphal entry on the previous Sunday to the cross on Friday, and then to the mysterious empty tomb that Sunday morning. From celebration to mourning to confusion. It was consuming their thoughts and their conversations. They didn't know what to do or where to turn. But look at what verse 15 says. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Like the term that H.B. Charles Jr. uses, he would call this the undelegated presence of Christ. That Jesus himself drew near. He didn't send a proxy. It doesn't say Gabriel himself drew near. No, Jesus himself. The God-man came to walk with them in the midst of their troubles. Can I just say what a blessing it is that we don't have a God who is too busy for us, but rather one who is near and compassionate to us. And so, uh, the psalmist writes in Psalm 46.1 that God is our refuge and strength a very present help in times of trouble. And this is so clear here in Luke 24. Jesus draws near to these men in their time of trouble. 
So now everything is immediately better, right? Jesus draws near and they see him and they're so happy and they're immediately filled with hope again. If the passage ended right there, we might assume that's what happened. But it doesn't. What does verse 16 say? And their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They have no idea that it's Jesus. It's just some other man on the road who decides to walk with them. This was nothing out of the ordinary. The unusual part about it was how unaware of major events this third man was. He overhears these two men talking and asks them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? This stranger seems to be clueless to the biggest news in town. So now we get an explanation from the two men. Starting in verse 18 again, it says, And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Cleopas, one of these men, teaches us so much about what these followers of Christ were experiencing at this time. The first thing that we notice is their countenance. In light of the empty tomb, we might expect that they would be overjoyed, but they have yet to understand the significance. And they weren't merely bummed about what had happened. They were deeply saddened, and their faces showed it. They were sad because this man whom they had put their hope in Jesus, who would be the Messiah that they had heard about and looked forward to their whole lives. All the prophecies pointed to him being the one, the Savior. But things had not panned out as they had expected. Because the rulers and chief priests had had him crucified, and he was buried along with their hope. And to confuse matters even worse, now the group of women who were close to Jesus had gone to his tomb, and they were seeing visions of angels who said that he was alive. Peter and John went to the tomb, and it was empty, but they couldn't find Jesus anywhere. So what are these men supposed to believe now? Nothing is as clear as they would like. Now, from the outside looking in, we might be thinking, why doesn't Jesus just reveal his identity to them? They are clearly dismayed and lacking assurance, and it would be so easy to open their eyes and restore their hope. But Jesus has something else in mind. See, the real problem for these men is that they don't have a right understanding of who Jesus is. Their hope has been misplaced, and now Jesus is going to reveal the reality of who the Messiah truly is and what he came to do. Look what Jesus says in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He actually begins here by rebuking them. He rebukes them for their failure to believe what had been prophesied about the Messiah, specifically when it came for the need for the Messiah to suffer. Cleopas had expressed earlier that they had believed that there would be one who would redeem Israel. They believed the prophecies like Zechariah 9.9 and 2 Samuel 7.12 where we read about the coming of a victorious and conquering Messiah. 
but they miss the prophecies about Christ's need to suffer. Prophecies like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. They only had half of the picture. The Messiah would indeed be a conquering and victorious king, but he would achieve his victory through humility, suffering, and death. So immediately after his rebuke, Jesus enrolls these two men in the greatest lecture on the Old Testament that has ever been taught. Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, or in other words, from Genesis to Malachi, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All 39 books from the Old Testament had been building up to this. And now for the first time, as Jesus is explaining these things to them, the lights come on. It becomes clear to them who the Messiah is and why he came. Do you remember the first time that this happened for you? When the grand narrative of Scripture came alive and you began to understand God's plan of salvation? It is this very thing that these men needed to resurrect their dead hope. To understand that no mistakes had been made, but rather that this was God's plan all along. Very simply, Jesus was explaining to them the gospel. Throughout Scripture, we can see in places like Genesis 1 and Exodus 33 that God is holy. He is set apart, perfect, and righteous. We read in places like Genesis 3 and really the rest of the Old Testament that sin separates us. Because God is holy and just, He cannot let sin go unpunished, and therefore a price must be paid to restore our relationship. Because God is not only perfectly just, but also perfectly loving. He made a way by means of a substitute, a representative, someone to take the punishment for our sins and at the same time, give us his perfect righteousness. This someone, this Messiah, is prophesied throughout the whole Old Testament. From Exodus 12 to Numbers 24, 17 to Psalm 2 to Isaiah 52 and 53. He would be called the Christ, and he would stand in our place. And the response of his people would be one of, uh, of repentance and belief. We see this in Ezekiel 14, 6 and throughout the Gospels. Finally, we read in places like the Psalms that those who believe in Christ as Savior will have newness of life. This is the message of hope, and it's found in the Scriptures. Jesus shows these men that they, where they can go any time that they are lacking hope. They can turn to the Scriptures. They can turn to the Gospel. I was reading the other day about a major flood that happened earlier this year in Australia. There was a story about a man who was driving with his daughter when the floodwaters came and swept away their car until it was pinned against a tree. The man and his daughter were able to get out of the car and they climbed up the tree as the floodwaters continued to rise. And the father realized that it might be a while until rescue was able to get to him, so he took it upon himself to go back down into the floodwaters, actually, down to their car, and he retrieved a rope. He climbed back up the tree and he tied both himself and his daughter off to the tree so that the floodwaters wouldn't wash them away. They ended up spending two nights, actually, in the tree before the water subsided enough for them to climb down and get help. And as I was reading about this, I was thinking about all the things in life that might wash away our hope. Uncertainty about the future, grief, sorrow, or maybe even an ongoing struggle with sin. But the word of God is like a steadfast, unmovable tree. When our hope is tested, we should tie ourselves to the word of God. Are you feeling pressed by the floodwaters of life and your hope is suffering as a result? 
Are you turning to God's word to strengthen your hope? Maybe you're growing weary because of the chaos that surrounds you as you live in a fallen world. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, 20. Be reminded of our mission as believers to be disciple makers and trust Christ's promise to be with us always. Visit 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Be encouraged that there is an imperishable inheritance awaiting those who trust in Christ. Maybe this morning you're feeling crushed by the weight of your sins. The sorrow and the shame can be overwhelming. Turn to Romans 8.1. Find assurance that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Visit 2 Corinthians 4.16. Be reminded that though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Or maybe you're facing persecution for your faith, whether by an employer who mistreats you or a family member who mocks you, and it's draining you of your hope. Return again to God's Word. Go to Christ's Sermon on the Mountain in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, where Jesus calls the one who suffers on his account blessed, for your reward is great in heaven. Maybe this morning your hope is failing, because God doesn't seem to have any interest in answering your prayers. Prayers that he would save a family member who is entirely opposed to the gospel. Prayers for relief from suffering and hardship, yet things continue to get worse. Fear not. There is hope to be found in God's word. Turn to Proverbs 15.8. First be assured that God delights to hear your prayers. Look to Ezekiel 36.26 and 2 Peter 3.8-9. See that it is God who saves, and his timing in everything is perfect. Go to Matthew eleven twenty nine. See the gentle and compassionate heart of Christ for those who are weary. God's word is filled with hope for the believer. We're so privileged to live in a time and place where we have 24 access to the Bible. We will not, however, find hope in simply owning a Bible. It's only when we actually sit down and begin to saturate ourselves in it. When we read deeply and broadly then we are able to confidently expect better days ahead. Now, opening God's Word may be the most foundational way to find hope as we walk with Christ, but it's not the only way. Another way we find hope is by treasuring Christ's presence. We treasure Christ's presence. As we continue in the passage, after Christ has explained the Scripture to the men and they arrive in Emmaus, we read how Christ acts if he is continuing on past there. But the two men insist that he stay the night since it's getting late, and so Jesus does. He stays with them. In the next three verses, starting with 30, Jesus does something extraordinary in the most ordinary of circumstances. In verse 30 it says, When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. It's now revealed to these two men that this stranger whom they had been walking with and talking with was no stranger at all. It was Jesus all along. What he had explained to them in the scriptures was true. The testimony of the women at the tomb was true. He had been raised from the dead, and their hope is now confirmed. You can imagine the shock when they sit down to eat with this stranger whom they just met, and he blesses the food and grabs a piece of bread and breaks it, and as he passes it to them, all of a sudden it hits them. His face becomes familiar to them again. It's Jesus, 
the one whom they had wept over and grieved for, their friend, their brother, their Lord. And as soon as they realize it, he vanishes. He literally just disappears from their sight. And in their bafflement, they turned to each other and said, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You see, while their eyes were blind to the fact that it was Jesus, their hearts weren't. It's as if their hearts were trying to get their attention to tell them what was happening right in front of them. However, their eyes couldn't see it. But now their eyes were opened, and they could see their Savior again. They could treasure the fact that they were met with the presence of the triumphant Savior. It's a real testament to the kindness of Jesus, that he would walk with them, talk with them, share a meal with them. The one in whom they had put their hope in was not only alive, but purposefully present with them. When Sarah and I were dating, just after high school, we used to watch a lot of Bob Ross videos. Uh, and we would try to recreate his paintings, oftentimes on sidewalks around town. And so there's a picture of Bob Ross. If you need something to jog your memory, if the name didn't help ring any bells. But uh, if you don't know, Bob Ross was a painter, and he had a show on PBS in the 80s and 90s where he would teach people how to paint these beautiful landscape paintings in an accessible way. One of the best things about watching Bob Ross was when you watched him paint, it was like 95% of the video, you had no idea what he was doing. It just was like a lot of colors and shapes kind of put together, but it didn't really look like anything. But then with the last you know, couple strokes of the brush, it all came together in such a beautiful way. And all of a sudden, you are left staring at this masterpiece, and you have no idea where it came from. In the same way, Christ's presence wasn't perceived until the last moment. And the men were left marveling at the grace of their Savior, that he would meet with them and restore their hope again. Does Christ's presence give you hope this morning? We too have the opportunity to meet with the risen Christ in a special way every week. Now we know that God is omnipresent. He is in all places at all times. But there is also a special and personal way that God meets with his people. We call this his manifest presence. And the number one way that he meets with us in this way is when we gather together as the body of Christ on Sunday mornings. And again, we know that it's not that Jesus physically walks in the back doors of the church and comes and sits in a pew. He is present, though, through the reading and preaching of his word, through our unashamed worship, as we pray to him together and as we share the good news of Jesus. These are the means he has given to us in his word to meet with him in a personal, set-apart way. This is what Redemption Bible Church is built upon. If you look at the wall out by our coffee shop, you're going to see our four pillars, right? And they are unapologetic preaching, unashamed worship, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. We place a high value on these means because we want to meet with God as we gather and go out so that we might bring honor and glory to his name. It's not just a simple mechanical equation where you can just kind of throw all these things together in a pot and poof, you have the presence of God. But it's also not overly complicated. We are humbly seeking to bring glory to the name of Jesus, and we're using the means he has given to us. He actually does meet with us, which is an astounding thought. Right here, right now, this very morning, Christ is meeting with us. 
Don't overlook that. Our creator, our king, our savior is here with us right now. Sometimes we can't see it, though. Oftentimes we come to worship with blindfolds on, keeping us from seeing and savoring his presence. I'll be honest, this has been hugely convicting in my own heart over the last few weeks as I've studied this passage. So often as we come to worship on a Sunday morning, our minds are distracted. Distracted by responsibilities, lunch plans, the argument you had with your spouse on the drive here, or even distracted by preferential things. We think things like, I didn't really like that song, or this prayer is taking too long. This list is definitely not exhaustive, but all these things are like blindfolds that keep us from treasuring the presence of Christ. It's so, so easy for Sunday morning worship to become a routine. It's just what we do, right? Sunday we go to church, and Monday through Friday we go to work. When we begin to view worship this way, though, we begin to lose the significance of it. It becomes ordinary. We need to have our eyes open to behold the wonders and beauties of Christ. Does his presence lead you to worship, to be in awe of his majesty? Does it cause your heart to burn within you? Now, one thing that this passage isn't teaching us is that we need to try and chase a feeling that makes us all warm inside, and if we don't achieve the feeling, then we must not have really met with Christ. That's not the point. Worship is the point. And sometimes worship will be accompanied by hopeful gladness, but at other times it will be marked by hopeful sorrow. It's not about the feelings, it's about adoring the one who is sovereign over our feelings. We should be preparing our hearts for worship every week. There are some practical ways we can do this. Maybe you need to wake up 10 minutes earlier or set out your clothes for you and the kids on Saturday night so you can be a few minutes earlier on Sunday morning to give yourself time to set your heart on worshiping Christ. Or maybe there's a conversation you've been needing to have that you keep putting off and it's weighing on you. Don't let it draw your gaze away from Christ. Call the person this weekend, have the conversation. But even still, the most important thing that we can do to remove the blindfolds is to pray. That's right, you've heard it before, and I hope it's not the last time, but like any problem we have in life, the best and most effective thing we can do is to go to the Lord and ask for his help. God is the one who opens our eyes eyes to behold his beauty. We saw this clearly in our passage. So ask him to do it for you this morning. Ask him to open your eyes so that you might treasure his presence. Now there's one final way that walking with Jesus leads to greater hope, and that is by telling God's people. We tell God's people. Verse 33 says, They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now, don't forget that Jesus came in to stay with them because it was already getting late. The sun had probably already set, but they can't wait. They must return to the 11 disciples. They didn't say, oh, well, it's late, but let's get to sleep, and first thing in the morning, we'll head back. No, at that very hour, they rose. It was too important to wait. Verse 33 continues, And they found the eleven, and those who were with them, gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. These men are so eager to share with the eleven that Jesus is alive, and that he had appeared to them. When they finally arrive to tell the disciples, before they can share, they are met with the news that Christ had appeared to Simon Peter as well. Another confirmation that the testimonies of the women 
the scriptures and what they had seen with their own eyes was true. There was no room for questioning in their minds. There were no thoughts of, well, it was late and we didn't get a lot of sleep last night, so maybe we didn't really see what we thought we saw. No, it was abundantly clear. They could rejoice because Jesus is indeed alive. What a blessing that the Lord provided these followers with one another so they could share together what Christ had done and both be encouraged and be a source of encouragement and that they might all live lives of greater hope. We share the things that we care about with those people that we care about. I've noticed this with things like music. When we find a band we especially enjoy, we become a spokesman for their music. For instance, if you and I have ever had a conversation about music, then I've probably expressed my enjoyment of Chris Stapleton's music. I can't condone every song, but if you're looking for some music to listen to while you're sitting by the river cooking out this summer, Chris Stapleton is your man. We all do this, though, right? With bands, sports teams, the college you went to, or your favorite restaurant. We become spokespersons because we want other people to share the same great experience that we've had. If this is the case with our hobbies and other interests, then how much more should we be doing this as a community of believers? Sharing things like stories of answered prayers or a verse that has been encouraging your faith or an evangelism opportunity that you had this week. When we see Christ at work in our lives, we ought to tell people. Maybe you finally got the opportunity to share the gospel with a coworker, or maybe you've been praying for a family member who has cancer and it's finally gone into remission. Or maybe the Lord is softening the heart of one of your kids to understand the gospel. Share these things with one another. When we see a God at work in our lives, we tell people. Not for our own sake, that we might look like we have obtained some special favor from God, but to encourage the hope of our brothers and sisters and to be reminded that Christ is alive and he is still showing up and working in our lives. We ought to do this with a kind of urgency, just like these men. The fact that Christ is actively working in your life is no small thing. You may be thinking, well, nobody is going to care about this story. It's not that exciting. But let me tell you, if it has given you hope and led you to praise Christ, then share it. There may be people in your small group who have a hard time seeing how God is in any way present and working in their life. And when you share examples from your own life, it can open their eyes to see these things for themselves. We should consider it a privilege that God would use us in this way, that we might declare the greatness of his grace towards us. This is one of the great blessings of the church. We get to encourage one another to hope in Christ day by day. We get to do this. Beloved, there are so many things in this world that would try and kill our hope. There is even an, a real enemy who is prowling around seeking someone to, to, to devour, and he would love to devour our hope. But Christ, in his infinite love and wisdom, has given us ways in which we can nourish and grow our hope. We can turn to God's word, we can treasure Christ's presence, and we can tell God's people. And when we do, we can confidently expect better days ahead. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you again just for your word. God, thank you that in it we can find hope when we are lacking. God, we thank you that uh, your presence is here with us even this morning, God, that we can treasure the beauties of Christ as he is on display before us. God, would we not be blind to those things? 
And God, again, we also thank you for uh, the body of believers that is around us this morning. Brothers and sisters who love us and care about us, more importantly, who love the Lord. People to point us to the gospel, to point us to your word when we are needing hope. I pray that you would work in each of us this week, God, that we would be people who are marked by hope. People who love Christ, love his word, love his people. But we need your help. We need you to intervene, to come in and change our hearts. Give us this desire this morning. Uh, We love you. God, we want to worship you this morning. We want to give all the praise and adoration to Christ because he is worthy this morning. He is indeed alive, and we worship him. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.